Yeah, a book uh, recommendation for the topic that we're looking at this morning. This is called Jesus Wins, Dayton Hartman, uh, who's pastor down in North Carolina. Um, super helpful little book on matters of end times, last things, however you refer to that, the coming of Jesus Christ, the return of Jesus Christ. Um, it, it is... Um, it's a simple book, and yet it, it overviews sort of people's thinking on the end times, but it really draws back to the, what we fundamentally agree on, which is that Jesus is coming and Jesus wins and rules. So if this is a topic as we go through this this morning that inspires some thinking on your part and you want to read more on it, I would recommend this. Or if you have somebody that asks you questions about end time sort of things, I would encourage this little booklet. Um, we have it out there, number of copies still available. There's a suggested donation on there. And if you look at that and say, well, that seems expensive for such a small little book, it's half the price of Amazon. So there's my pitch. Um, it's one of those books that just kind of got my attention because it's recommended by so many different people of different stripes in terms of some of the thinking on end time stuff as we're going to talk about this morning um, because they see it as a, just a great summary. So the, the reason that I want to take up the topic that I'm going to take up this morning is because there are prophecies in the book of Isaiah that raise questions about timing and fulfillment. How do these prophecies actually work themselves out? When might they take place? They, they clearly point beyond the future of Isaiah's lifetime, and in fact, it would seem point to beyond our uh, immediate present and into the future even today. Um, Isaiah chapter 2, we, we read this a number of weeks back, but verses 3 and 4 say, speak of the promise of nations streaming to Jerusalem. It says, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. It's one of those passages, again, where as we understand the historical context of Isaiah, and it's 730 or so BC, we understand that they are surrounded by war. There are enemies, there are concerns about warfare, uh, there is much violence, much sin, much arrogance and pride, and so it seems hard to fathom when Isaiah prophesies this, when will this be? Similar message in Isaiah 11, a passage I hope to get to next Sunday about when the Messiah rules the earth with righteousness. And in Isaiah 11, verse 6, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze their young child, uh, their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Ever since Isaiah proclaimed this vision, there have been attempts to try to understand what is it that he means? What is he looking forward to? What is this prophecy, and, and how will it be fulfilled? Are these literal events on earth? If so... When will this time of unprecedented peace and tranquility occur? We know in the centuries after Isaiah, Isaiah writes again around 700 BC, and so we move to the New Testament times, and Jesus begins in his ministry and preaches, and then the New Testament writers begin to fill out the discussion for us. And ever since the second century AD, much of the conversation about Isaiah's prophecies 
goes back to one of those um, prophetic things given to us by the, by, by the apostles, the apostle John in particular in Revelation chapter 20. And I'm going to read a portion of Revelation 20. If you want to turn there this morning, I'm going to read from Revelation 21 through 10 in a moment. But, but what's in Revelation 20 helps to, to form the basis for what we would refer to today, what believers today refer to as the millennium, this period of a thousand years. Not millennials, as we often hear about these days, but this thousand-year period. That's simply what millennium means. And six times in seven verses, the Apostle John writes this phrase, a thousand years. Uh, a few weeks ago, I mentioned to you, I planned to sidetrack from the Isaiah survey uh, so that we could think a little bit more about the millennium and matters of what Christians, theologians typically refer to as eschatology. It simply means the study of last things. Looking at the return of Jesus Christ and events surrounding the return of Jesus Christ. Christians have been discussing the millennium and its connection to the return of Jesus Christ since at least the second century, and they have debated about it and disagreed about it since about the third century. It didn't take long for it to become a point of difference. Now, if you're thinking, oh, why did I pick this morning? He's going to do this eschatology thing. What does this have to do with Isaiah? That's a fair question. Let me say to you first, our own confession of faith here at Grace Bible Church does not mention the millennium. We hold no litmus test here for one's view on the millennium. But when we read passages like Isaiah 2 and, and 11 and a number of others that we're going to get to in the book of Isaiah, there are questions of interpretation that we're trying to understand. What, what, what is this looking toward? When will this time be when it seems as if War is banished and there is peace and perhaps even animals and humans are at peace. Is this symbolic? Is this literal? And, and so I think all of that fits into what I want to talk to you about this morning. But I really hope to accomplish three things. I want to briefly survey for you just the, the, the three primary views on the millennium that Christians tend to hold. There's three sort of groups of views. We won't go into super detail because there's there's variations within them, but just the three broad groups. But then more than that, I want to secondly emphasize truths about the last things that we all hold together, the things that, that we all believe about the return of Jesus Christ. And then third and most important is why this matters for you, for eternity, and for living today. So let me start in Revelation 20. I'm just going to read the first 10 verses to get us thinking about this. It says, Apostle John writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed, also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power 
but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. There's the passage that raises the question of the millennium. What is this thousand years that John is referring to? Revelation 20 describes a time when Satan is bound and when Jesus is clearly ruling. It is a time that will end as he describes there in those last verses we read with this great want to call it battle. We often think of this as Armageddon. It's not really a battle in so much as the enemy approaches and Jesus destroys the enemy and Satan is cast into this lake of fire. And what follows in Revelation 21 describes the new heaven and the new earth that follows. And we'll, we'll look at that before we're done this morning. There's three different ways that evangelical Christians generally look at this passage in Revelation 20 to try to discern what this millennium is, which then again bears on our understanding in parts of Isaiah and his prophecies. You'll find some variations within these three, but I want to try to stay big picture. And so they are amillennial, postmillennial, premillennial. Um, I, I'm going to try to give a definition for each that, that comes from those who hold to the views so that I'm trying to be fair to that. So I'll start with amillennialism, which says that the millennium, the thousand year period of Revelation 20, describes the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ during this present age between his first and his second coming, together with the saints who live and share his sovereign rule in what is known as the intermediate state. So amillennialism believes that we are in that era that Revelation 20 describes is where we are now and have been since the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension into heaven that moves us into this time, having really begun at Pentecost, where Jesus Christ is ruling. He is ruling with those who die in the faith. That's what um, Sam Storms means when he says they're the intermediate state. Those who have died, they have not yet um, the bodies have not been resurrected, but to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so they are in this, what theologians use the term intermediate state to describe that existence prior to the resurrection. They are with Jesus and they are ruling and they will continue to rule with him until he returns to earth. So when Revelation 20 then speaks of the binding of Satan, that for he is chained and, and put under custody, if you will, for, for the, the thousand years, the response to that that all millennials will say is that means that throughout the gospel age in which we now live, the influence of Satan, though certainly not annihilated, is so curtailed that he cannot prevent the spread of the gospel to the nations of the world. Because of the binding of Satan during this present age, the nations cannot conquer the church, but the church is conquering the nations. Indeed, we see the, the spread of the gospel and the, the, the moving forth of the church of Jesus Christ and the fact that it cannot be stopped. That is certainly Jesus' promise. Many amillennialists will say that the name amillennial is not a particularly helpful one. When you put ah in front of something, that prefix negates it. So technically, it would mean no millennium. Um, Anthony Hokema, who I just quoted from, writes this. He said, though it's true that amillennials do not believe in a literal thousand-year earthly reign which follows the return of Christ, the term amillennialism is not an accurate description of their view. Again, they are seeing Jesus Christ as reigning now over a long period of time, clearly more than a thousand years, so the number is figurative 
relative in that sense, but certainly that's not unusual in Scripture, that a large number can also have a, a figurative sense in some places. Um, they see Jesus reigning from heaven through his word and his spirit. And they believe that, that there will be the glorious establishment of the new heaven and the new earth. And so a lot of the things that we see will be ultimately fulfilled in that new earth. Probably the biggest difference between amillennialism, postmillennialism, and premillennialism, the one that separates that one from the rest, is this question of Revelation chapter 20 and that use of the term thousand years and the binding of Satan. And, and that, in some sense, goes to how you read the book of Revelation. It really, there's, there's generally, being broad here, two approaches, and one is to see it as mostly speaking to the future, future even for us of events that are still to come. And there's also the view that it is sort of parallel um, recapitulations of this age, the first, the, from the first coming to the second coming, that what we are seeing is descriptions of this age between those two in various forms in the book of Revelation. So let me shift to, and, and the, the latter view that that it's showing this current age is what the amillennial view would be. Let me shift to postmillennialism. One scholar writes this. Postmillennialism is that view of the last things which holds that the kingdom of God is now being extended in the world through the preaching of the gospel and the saving work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of individuals. That the world eventually is to be Christianized and that the return of Christ is to occur at the close of a long period of righteousness and peace commonly called the millennium. Postmillennial view would see, again, the millennium as an indefinite period of time, not specifically a thousand years, period that we, we may be in now. Postmillennial scholars would, would differ, perhaps, on, on whether or not it's clear that we are in the millennium, but it would seem to be this, this current Christian age. And, and, and what is happening is Christians are fulfilling the mandate from Jesus to make disciples of all the nations. We're living out the Great Commission from Matthew chapter 28, and as we obey that, we are moving closer and closer toward the completion of the millennium. So Bettner writes this, this does not mean that there will be a time on this earth when every person will be a Christian or that all sin will be abolished, but it does mean that evil in all its many forms eventually will be reduced to negligible proportions, that Christian principles will be the rule, not the exception, and that Christ will return to a truly Christianized world. So when postmillennialists would look at the, the prophecies in Isaiah, um, of a world with this unprecedented peace and tranquility. They are looking at that still as something in the future, even for us, as the gospel spreads and the rule of Christ increases and takes hold in the hearts of men and women throughout the world. And, and the world is, life on earth, if you will, is transformed. And then Jesus returns. So that's, that's the post-millennial, is that the, the, the reign, and then Jesus returns. There's no mistaking the seriousness with which this view takes the Great Commission, uh, the, the pressing call to make disciples and the fact that advancing the gospel should be something that engages the hearts of all believers in Jesus Christ. We should be praying and evangelizing and supporting missions and acting on our conviction that the gospel is the single truth that will transform the lives of the people around us, that they need Jesus Christ. And that's fundamentally true, and we know that. Uh, the reality is that post-millennialism is probably the least widely held of the three, in part because despite the ongoing spread of the gospel in our world, what we've seen for 
generations in Europe and what we see before us now in the United States, at least, and again, this is anecdotal, but it, it gives us some pause because we don't see nations moving toward the gospel. We see more and more movement away from the gospel and in fact, even a growing hostility toward Christianity. Um, the the post-mill scholars in response to that would say, there, there's not a promise that this sort of Christianization of things is a straight direct line. Um, if you could think of it in terms of the change of seasons, and we've got a very vivid illustration of this, we know spring is coming. Yesterday morning didn't look like spring was coming. You might have changed and said, I'm, I don't know what I believe about the seasons at this point. But we know spring is coming and the forecast says it's getting better, but that there are moments that interrupt that. And that's really the argument that the post-mill scholars will make is that there, there is overall movement toward the spread of the gospel and that there will be interruptions in that, but then Jesus Christ will return. Final millennial position sees the book of Revelation, particularly beginning in chapter four as being futuristic. It's all pointing forward from Revelation chapter four on and foretelling future events. And so this is the premillennial view, which sees Jesus's second coming described in the last part of Revelation chapter 19, before then what would be a literal 1,000 years in chapter 20, when Jesus binds Satan and rules over an earthly kingdom during that time. After that millennium, Jesus completes the final defeat of Satan. We read that at the end of chapter 20 and inaugurates the eternal state with a new heaven, new earth in chapter 21. The return of Jesus Christ in that case is pre-millennial. He returns and then establishes this kingdom. I'm not quoting anyone specific here because that's the view that I hold to. I hold it loosely. And, and by loosely, I, I just wanna be really clear on that. That doesn't mean that I'm sloppy about this or don't care about these things. I think matters of biblical interpretation, how we handle the word of God is something we should do with care we should be thoughtful about these things, but a believer's millennial view should not impinge on his or her view of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not decisive in that way. There are essential doctrines of the Christian faith concerning man's sin, fall, the, the, the person and work of Jesus Christ, the saving work of Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection, the turning to Christ in repentance and faith. Those are essential matters to somebody's eternal destiny. But the elders here at Grace believe that one's view of the millennium is not a question of salvation. It does not rise to that level. So I hope you, you see that. It's important. It's worthy of our study. And, and I, I, as we go on, I hope I convince you more of that. It is not an issue that is going to, to settle one's salvation. And so while millennials will see the current church age as the fulfillment of Revelation 20, post-millennials have a faith-filled optimism of a world that is increasingly embracing Jesus as Lord. Premillennials would see the world as growing increasingly hostile toward Christianity with a time of great tribulation, which they would argue is, is seen in the book of Revelation. And that precedes then the return of Christ and the millennium, the new heavens and the new earth. All of these views have challenges and weak spots to them. You watch any debate or you read, you know, there's the books that the theologians put out, three views of the end times. And 
Each one states their case, and then the other two come back and shoot holes in that one's case. All of these have, have weak spots in them. Uh, it may be that the view one has of the world's condition doesn't seem to reconcile with reality or the handling of Revelation 20 and, and taking multiple uses of a thousand years to be figures of speech may, may be a struggle, or it may be the tendency that some quarters of premillennialism have had since at least the 1970s that I remember to repeatedly try to take the headlines of the day and read them into the book of Revelation, to try to say, well, this is chapter so-and-so and verse whatever of the book of Revelation coming true. I, I grew up in that kind of setting. A couple weeks ago, a, a, a well-known televangelist came out and, and said, see what's happening in Ukraine. This is a complete fulfillment of what's been said in Ezekiel, and he quoted chapter and verse on that. Listen, we should always be eager to speak God's word to our world and into our world and into its crises and into its situation. And we should be eager to apply God's word into the world, but we should be so careful. It is risky at best to try to explain current events as an outworking of specific prophecies in the book of Revelation. Uh, we are on thin ice when we sort of try to say, this, this, this is that. We should say what Scripture says, we should warn as Scripture warns, and we should not exceed the boundaries of Scripture on these things. I hope we, we're all good on that. How then does this fit back with Isaiah? Isaiah is talking about these seasons of unprecedented peace and tranquility. So how would that fit inside the views? Let me just summarize just briefly. Premillennialism would see that a lot of these things that Isaiah is talking about where there's peace and tranquility would happen during a, a literal millennium, a literal reign of Christ on earth, and they would be fulfilled after his return. Postmillennialism would see these things happening toward the end of, of this age, this age that's moving toward the return of Christ, and would also see some of them occurring as well in the new heavens and the new earth, as, as would premillennialism as well. Amillennialism would see a, a number of these prophecies as figurative, but also a number of them as literally fulfilled in the new earth. I, I hope that helps you just in terms of as we think about Isaiah, that's some of the ways that that, that would apply. Sadly, throughout church history, this has become an issue that is more divisive than it is sometimes helpful. The matters of eschatology have been hotly debated. Eusebius was a church historian who wrote early in the 300s after Christ, put out the ecclesiastical history somewhere around the year 320. And part of what he writes in there is he acknowledges that there was another church father who preceded him by by more than 200 years. And he quotes this church father, Papias, as saying that Jesus would physically rule on the earth for a thousand years, essentially acknowledging that I should say Papias, not Papias, Papias held a, a premillennial view. And then Eusebius very kindly said, but he was wrong. He misunderstood the apostles and was misguided in his thinking. So what you have is one of the earliest church fathers stating a view and one of the next church fathers coming along and saying, no, that was wrong. He didn't understand what he was talking about. And that's been the history of the, the, the conversation on this. One scholar I quoted earlier said this about 40 years ago, the differences between post-odd premillennialists, which should be treated as comparative non-essentials, actually divide the churches and become a serious impediment to Christian fellowship. That's why our elder team has not set the millennium as some kind of litmus test. Instead, we have agreed on, and our confession of faith represents some essentials concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ. And those essentials are this. 
Jesus Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. There will be a resurrection of the dead. All who have rejected Christ will be sent away by God into eternal suffering apart from God in hell, while God will welcome into his kingdom all who have been saved by his grace through faith, and they will enjoy unbroken fellowship with him in the new heavens, in the new heavens and the new earth forever. Let me just be clear about those things. We believe Jesus Christ will return. At his first advent that we celebrate at Christmas, Jesus Christ came, the Son of God took on flesh, and he was born in a remote village in a very unspectacular way. Besides the conception, I, I get all the miraculous part, but I'm talking about historically from an earthly perspective in a very unspectacular, very unknown way. Jesus Christ's return will be in power and in glory, and it will be visible and it will be known. He will be bringing God's justice to bear on all of mankind. Jesus Christ, when he returns, will return as the, the righteous judge of the living and of the dead who will be raised to stand before him. Jesus himself described this in Matthew chapter 25 when he spoke of the Son of Man coming in glory and then separating all of humanity. It says in Matthew chapter 25, as Jesus describes it, to his right, Jesus will place all those whose deeds on earth reflect humble obedience to his word and to his truth. Let's be clear. He is not saying it was their works that saved them. He's saying that their works testify to who they are, that they have trusted in Jesus Christ and been saved by his grace. They are the ones who, it says, he will place on his right, Lives testifying to their faith in the Savior. And to them he will say, Matthew 25, 34, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then the righteous judgment of Jesus will be of those who remain, who by their deeds will have proven their rejection of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And it says this also in Matthew 25, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. All at once, side by side, Jesus gives to us what is one of the most terrifying pictures in all of scripture, paralleled with one of the most glorious scenes in all of scripture. And it speaks to God's justice and his righteousness that Jesus will judge humanity and there will be eternal punishment for those who have rejected him. That should impact us as believers in Jesus Christ every single time we ponder that, that those who are separated from him, those who will not trust in Jesus Christ, face eternal judgment for their sin. It was after that, that judgment by Christ, that then Revelation 21 would follow, and this is a place then again where all of the sort of schools, if you will, of eschatology sort of regather and, and unite, and that is because we get now to the, the inevitable end, which is the new heavens and the new earth. Let me read Revelation 21, 1 through 8. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Friends, there's, there's a lot that you may take away from this morning. Maybe it's the first time you've thought about millennium, or maybe this has reaffirmed your, your view on the millennium. What, whatever you do, please don't come to me at the door and say, hey, I want to argue the millennium with you. That, that would mean that you would missed, or I would have missed conveying the rest of this to you. For, for practical reasons, I paused our survey of Isaiah today because it seemed like a good place to acknowledge that evangelical Christians may look differently at, at how these prophecies are fulfilled and when, and, and all that's good, but at the heart of what we looked at this morning should be the same heartbeat that is behind Isaiah's proclamation 3,000 years ago, should be the same words that are spoken by Jesus Christ as he inaugurates his ministry and then is carried out by the apostles throughout the New Testament era, and that is that the truth about the return of Jesus Christ is crucially important for your eternity and for your life today. The fact that Jesus Christ is returning to judge the living and the dead matters for you. It matters for where you spend eternity, and then it matters to how you live today. Isaiah's prophecies, we've already seen, included imminent warnings of danger. Isaiah is speaking to people who are caught up in arrogance and pride and rebellion. And so part of what he's saying is there is coming a threat right now. It's on your doorstep. Stop doing this. Turn. And so there's imminent warnings that are in Isaiah about their arrogance and their rebellion. But God, through Isaiah, was also saying these things with eternity in view. Because you can, you can somehow rescue yourselves from a military that surrounds you, but ultimately you will stand before the judge of the universe. And it is being right before him. The Bible's teaching about an eternal kingdom known as the new heavens and the new earth was not introduced in the book of Revelation, nor was it first given in 2 Peter, who speaks of the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. First place we find it in scripture is Isaiah. It's in the prophecies of Isaiah, and at the latter part of Isaiah, in the closing chapters, he is giving final warnings to the people. And in Isaiah 65, verse 2, he says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. That, that, that verse is as relevant today, obviously, as it was then. It speaks to the world around us today. I am speaking, he says, to a people who just want to do their own thing. They just want to follow their own path. 
They, they, they don't want to do what God says. And so he's holding out his hands and pleading. And Isaiah warns against them. And then he says in Isaiah 65, verse 13, notice the, the contrast that he gives here and think about what we've already read in Revelation 21. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. That, that contrast should sound very reminiscent of both the end of uh, what we read in Revelation 21 and also Matthew 25 when it talks about the judgment of Jesus Christ. The contrast between those who receive eternal life and blessing and those who face eternal punishment from God. Only fools mock God's justice by pretending that he is not really this way, that he's just sort of the loving, kind, grandfatherly guy who just lets it all slide in the end. And, and, and this kind of stuff about wrath and judgment and eternal punishment just turns against the ears of so many people today. And so they want to rewrite God to fit it. Listen, we, if, if anything we've taken clearly from Isaiah is God is holy and God is just. And God has set forth his law and all his ways are perfect. And what his law demonstrates is we are all law breakers. We all fall short. We all violate God's design. We all earn his judgment. But by grace, the father has sent his son so that his son might bear in his body the penalty that we deserve for sin. That his son might absorb the wrath that we deserve, God in his justice punishes sin. And for those who are trusting in Jesus Christ, praise God, that punishment has come in Jesus Christ. He has absorbed it in our place as a substitute, as the, the, the sacrificial lamb in our place so that we might receive life. For those who don't turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ, there is guilt and punishment. The Bible is abundantly clear that there is eternal life and blessing for his servants, and there is eternal shame and suffering, as Isaiah says, for those who will not bow before their creator. Jesus is the dividing line. Jesus is the, the servant who is looked forward to in Isaiah as the one who would come and bring light into the darkness. Jesus is the one whom your eternity will turn on. And so all of these warnings about the end times are, are, are also meant to bring us to that point of understanding that the righteous judge you will stand before is Jesus. And the question will not be, what did you do on that eschatology quiz? What millennial stance did you have? It will be, what did you do with the person and work of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he is who he says he is? That what he did on the cross took the guilt and the punishment for your sin and that he rose victoriously to, victoriously to defeat sin and death? Have you turned to him and trusted in him? Or, as Isaiah said earlier, will you stubbornly continue to walk in your own way? That's why biblical prophecy is crucial. It's, its fulfillment not only serves to demonstrate something about the truthfulness and power of God, and there's certainly that, we, we see biblical prophecy fulfilled in the New Testament and it reminds us of God's veracity that what he says is right and true and the Messiah has come and was born in Bethlehem to a virgin just as is promised. We see all that. 
But these are warnings of the reality of eternity. In Isaiah 50, verse 10, the prophet said, Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord. And so my encouragement to you, if, if you are at that place where you're saying, I don't, I don't know any of this end time stuff. I don't know what would happen to me if I die. I'm not ready to stand before God. Is Jesus Christ is your only hope. You must turn to him. You must admit that you are a sinner and believe that he died for your sin and, and believe that he rose again and trust fully in him. For all who repent and trust in him, here's the point I started back on a few minutes ago. Isaiah 65, verse 17 says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And see if this doesn't sound familiar in Isaiah when he writes that in this new place, no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. There's the promise that John is reminding us of in Revelation that Isaiah first told us that there is eternal blessing for all who believe and obey the word of the Lord. And for those who do, for those of you who are brothers and sisters of mine, as we trust together in Jesus Christ for our salvation, then what we read should be of crucial importance to how you live now. The New Testament often reminds believers in Jesus Christ that we are in the last days, that when Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, we entered into the last days and the return of Jesus Christ is near and therefore we should live in light of that. We should be knowing that our Savior is returning and living differently because of it. Throughout scripture, the study of the last things isn't meant to just give us intellectual knowledge. It is meant to incentivize us to rightly align our priorities and choices and dreams and ideas with what we believe about the coming of the Savior, Jesus Christ, and that that is the most important moment in all of history when he comes. And that it is, it is our privilege to be able to proclaim Christ to the nations. Um, if you ever work out your millennial view or not, that's fine. Don't sweat it. But a believer's millennial view, I'll say this again, should not impinge on his or her understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are essential doctrines of the Christian faith. The elders here at Grace believe that that is not a question of salvation. I want to make sure that you take that away from this this morning. Biblical prophecy, though, should impact your lives today. 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. There's Peter saying, he's coming, he's returning. Your prayer life should be affected by that. The seriousness with which you approach life should be affected by that because you know that your Savior is coming and you will stand before the judge and praise God as a believer in Jesus Christ, your sin will have been, have been taken care of by him on the cross, but he's coming. Live in light of that. The knowledge that he is coming to judge the quick and the dead should dramatically influence our priorities and our choices. 1 John 2 warns us, don't love this world and the things in this world. The things of the world should not be what captivates us. 1 John 2.17, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The word of God repeatedly speaks to us that the coming of Jesus Christ, his truth about where this all is moving toward should change how we live. What we love, what we're serious about, what we pray about, what we spend our money on, 
how we deal with temptations, what stirs our emotions. All of that should be influenced by the fact that we believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is returning to judge the living and the dead. This is not all there is. Our lives are fleeting, and that's why Moses in Psalm 90 says, when you pray, he's his model prayer, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. We, we can live like, got plenty of time, got lots I want to do. Moses is there to say, you got a short time. So please plead with God to give you wisdom to use it well. Our time is short. Jesus is returning, and that should compel us to live in light of it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that your word speaks prophetically from Genesis chapter 3 on. It, it tells a storyline of man's fall and your good work, plan, and work of redemption. That already, in just the short time after Adam's sin, Already there is the promise of a coming seed of the woman who would bring a crushing defeat to Satan, who would be a, a conquering king. And so we now have the benefit of living in the, in the light of that and having seen that carried out in the record we have in the New Testament to know that Jesus Christ is that king. And Jesus Christ has done all that was promised and Jesus Christ is returning to claim a people for his own and to judge the living and the dead. So Father, I, I pray this morning that if there's anyone here listening online who has any degree of uncertainty about what this means or how they would ever stand before a perfectly righteous judge, I pray that this would be the day when you would graciously turn their heart to embrace the hope that is found in Jesus alone. That he has, he has suffered in our place for our sin. And it's his righteousness that we would receive as a gift from trusting in him. And we thank you for that. Lord, I pray for our church that where you have placed us here in Lorton, here in Northern Virginia, that we would be consistently, consciously aware of the work that you are doing through the lives of this body of believers, that you have called us to this task of making disciples, and that all of this that we see around us is racing to a, a closure at some point, regardless of what we believe about the details on the end times, at some point the old will pass away and the new will come, and that new earth will be inhabited by your servants and others will be cast away into outer darkness forevermore. Would you give us grace and strength to be lights in our neighborhoods, amongst our families, at our workplaces, amongst this community where you have placed us, to urge people to the gracious, joyous truth of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us where priorities and wants and desires and dreams might need to be tweaked or wholesale changed in light of the truth of your coming. 
Help us to respond to that, to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, who is indeed the author and finisher of our faith, in whose name we pray.